I want to just say how proud I am of uh, both parents in, in this room um, for the knowledge that our kids already have, right? They were answering some of those questions like they already knew it. And parents, we talked about this in Sunday school this morning, discipleship does not just fall on the church, it falls on the parents. And so well done. Uh, and also, KidZone and Sunday school teachers, that is the fruit of your labor. You get to see it and, and praise God for that, right? That's, that's kind of why we do this. And so that's a really cool thing. Also, this may be a bad idea, but um, it is, we normally have, we normally have kids church for, for those kiddos to go upstairs right now, and we don't have that today, um, and so there is some colors in the back for the parent, I mean for the kids, uh, you know, if you need something to, to look at to keep you busy for the next uh, few minutes, that's there, um, so it, it's okay to sneak up and grab some of those, um, coloring books, colors, and then let's see what's the other thing, oh yeah, um, also want to say a big welcome to, to Dan and Jennifer Martin. Thank you guys for being here. So many, many people in this church know who the Martins are, but there's actually a lot of people in this room that have no clue who they are. Uh, Dan was the pastor here before Jeremy, and our church would not be who it is today if it wasn't for the time the Martins spent here. And so we're thankful for you. We're thankful for your time together. I know there is a solid group of people in the room that wish you were preaching today, me being one of them, uh, but, but he is getting ready to go to Guatemala, is that right? Uh, and he's going to preach a whole bunch next week. And so um, that that's, uh, he, that he's not preaching today. You, you're stuck with me for one last go around through the book of Jonah. So let's grab our Bibles. Let's flip over to the book of Jonah. Um, for those of you that have made it through the four weeks of this, uh, well done. Um, I wish we could spend a little bit more time. I'll be, I'll be honest with you. Uh, this book didn't go how I thought it was going to go, at least for me personally. Um, it was a little bit more difficult than I was kind of anticipating, uh, but it was, um, it was also good. I'm, I'm a little bit sad um, to be done with it. And so we're going to knock out all of chapter four today is our goal. So as you're going there, on October 7th, about 50 days ago, I think almost exactly, a group of Hamas militants attacked Israel. They killed over 1,200 Israelis, including women and children. And during the midst of this attack, uh, war crimes such as rape and torture happened. And then over 200 Israelites were kidnapped and they were taken back behind Palestinian lines just this weekend, some of the first of them being released. Now, unless you've lived under a rock, this is not news to you. You're aware of this. In fact, we here at Liberty has prayed for the peace of Jerusalem and that God would bring an end to this conflict. Now, for just a second, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of an Israelite. Israel's not a big country. It's pretty small. Uh, I think from top to bottom is like 90-ish miles. So, so it's, not, it's not big. Um, put yourself in their shoes for a minute. The odds of you knowing someone directly affected by this is pretty good. The odds of you knowing someone who knows someone that is directly affected by this is really high. So when this happens, how do you feel? What boils up in your heart when cousin, aunt, uncle has been kidnapped, has been murdered? How do you feel about this? If you're like me, you're probably ready to go to war. Most of us in this room probably looked over there and said, Israel is just in going to fight to bring back that group of people. They're just in going to war, right? That, that seems like the right thing to do. So in our scenario here, we as Israelites, I know we're not, but just for our illustration purposes, we're ready, gearing up to go to war. Then all of a sudden you hear the voice of God come to you and say, hey, I want you to go across the border to Palestine and I want you to 
warn them of what's coming. Warn them of the wrath that is headed their direction. Now, if you're like me, there's kind of a, I get to be the doomsday messenger. I can't wait to tell these guys what's coming their way. But then all of a sudden it begins to sink in. I get to warn them, but if I'm warning them, they know that I'm coming. And if God tells me to warn them, then they have a chance to say they're sorry and repent. And so you begin to wrestle with this, but after much ado, you make it across the border and you preach your message of warning. And guess what they do? They fall on their knees and they say they're sorry. And they release all the hostages. They send them back and they say, God have mercy on us. Now, how do you feel? Is it all good? You exit out, waiting to see God meet his punishment out on these people. What they had coming to him, right? But what does God do? Nothing. He relents. No punishment, no nothing. For these people that have murdered, raped, pillaged, kidnapped, and oppressed. No wrath, no punishment, no hellfire and brimstone. How do you feel now? What emotions are boiling up in your heart? The God that you have given your life to serve, the one you know to be true and just, is offering mercy to those people. The ones that just killed your family members. The ones that have rebelled against him. This scenario is really not too different than where we find our prophet Jonah. We come to the end of this book and we arrive at the crux of the story, the greatest problem with our journey. An angry prophet and a merciful God. Now, I don't know how many Hallmark movies you've watched. We're rolling into uh, the holiday season, right? So it just seems like there's one on every channel. Uh, and every Hallmark ending or story has the same storyline and it always ends with a good ending, right? And I know if I'm writing a story, I'm gonna leave a Hallmark ending to it. When it all's, I want it all to end well. Jonah chapter three, what happens? Jonah preaches this message. Hey, here's a message of warning. You better repent. The people of Nineveh repent and all's well that ends well, right? That, wouldn't that be where you ended it? Man, they repented. Woohoo! God saved them. This is all good. But we've got Jonah 4. And Jonah 4 is a little bit troublesome because it ends with a question. We don't get our answers. We're left unsatisfied in a lot of ways. So what I want to do is I want to read through Jonah chapter 4, and then we'll pray and we'll, we'll dive into this and we'll see where it leaves us. Jonah chapter 4. Verse one, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, oh Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and he sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. 
When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Spirit of God, I ask that you would give us eyes to understand the marvelous mysteries of your word and of your character. Help us to see our place in the story and how to respond appropriately. Father, thank you for being a God of mercy and grace, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love who relents from disaster. Work in us today, Holy Spirit. Redeem our own broken hearts and minds and use your word to convict us and draw us near to you. Do these things, Jesus, for your glory and our good. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. So the book of Jonah ends with the question. And since it ends with the question, I felt like instead of giving us a main point statement and a bunch of points that are in statements, to just give us questions. So today we're going to have questions and we're going to end with the biggest question of them all. But before we get to the big question, let's start with the little questions that our text asks of us. And the first question that we're going to walk into is, why are you so angry? Now, Jonah chapter one, verse, chapter four, verse one, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. In the Hebrew, uh, if you look down, mine has a little subscript. It uh, says it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. Actually, the word evil is used tw twice. It's translated, it became evil to Jonah as a great evil. That's how Jonah felt about it. It was, it was used twice. It was a big deal. It was evil to Jonah. Why? Why was God relenting evil to Jonah? Why, what made him so angry? Was Jonah angry because the Ninevites had received mercy? Remember back in chapter three, undoubtedly in his eyes, they were evil people. For them to receive mercy wouldn't make sense after all they had done. We talked about what Palestine has done to Israel, but when you read the history of what Nineveh was, what Assyria was to Israel, man, Palestine looks like good guys. I'm, I'm not gonna go into it because the kid's in the room, but man, Assyria and Nineveh were wicked, evil people. They hated God. They oppressed his people. They participated in idol worship. They were brutal and gory. Basically, everything that could be against God and his ways, the Ninevites were a part of. But chapter three, Jonah preaches his five-word message and all these Ninevites respond in repentance and faith. And then in verse 10 of chapter three, what does God do? God sees them turn from their anger or turn from their evil ways. And then God relents of the disaster that he was gonna bring on them. After all they had done, how could God offer them mercy? To Jonah and to us, it just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem just, it doesn't seem fair. In fact, it, in a sense, kind of seems evil. So was God's mercy towards a wicked people what caused Jonah to be angry? Partially. You see, I think verse two of chapter four gives us a look of what's actually going on in Jonah's heart. Look at verse two real quick. I'm gonna read this with a little extra emphasis. 
And he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in who? My country. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. While Jonah was angry, God showed the Ninevites mercy. What really made Jonah mad was that God didn't perform how Jonah wanted him to. While we don't see it back in chapter one, the battle for Nineveh began back there. If you look back at chapter one, verse one, you know what it says? The word of the Lord came to Jonah saying, but what does Jonah 4.2 say? Jonah says, I said. Jonah's fallen back into the same thing that Adam and Eve did in the garden with Satan. Remember the, the tempter comes to them and say, did God really say, did he really say that you shouldn't eat from that fruit or from that tree? Here's Jonah going, God, I said, you see, at the heart of the issue, Jonah had constructed in his own mind an image of what God was like and who he was supposed to be and what he was supposed to do. And when Jonah's God that he had constructed in his mind, a lowercase g, runs into Yahweh Elohim, the covenant God of Israel, who's created in the heavens and the earth, it doesn't go the way Jonah wants it to do. Church, when we make God into something that he's not, We'll be disappointed to say the least. When we try to force God to fit into our mold and he doesn't, how do we end up? Full of anger, just like Jonah. Now, we don't have time to go into the differences between righteous anger and unrighteous anger, and that's not the point of this sermon. You could get there from Jonah 4, but that's not what we're talking about today. What we do see in Jonah 4 is unrighteous anger. And just as a quick definition of what righteous anger is, righteous anger is when justice is truthfully not met. But what unrighteous anger is, unrighteous anger is anger that's really directed at God for being God. You see, it's when God doesn't work according to our ways, that's when we get mad. But as one commentator said, God is not in debt to us to do anything. The Lord cannot be tamed on the leash of our expectations. So when we expect God to do our bidding, we will end up unrighteously angry. Now, I don't know if you can think of a time when you've been unrighteously angry or when you expected God to do something for you. One of my favorite authors is a guy named Paul Tripp, and I've quoted him quite a bit before. Uh, but he tells a story a feeling called by God uh, to go and help lead a new a startup Christian school in the city of Philadelphia. And so Tripp prays about it. He relocates his family to go to the school because the school looks at him and says, hey, uh, you have a background in Christian education. You've done this, you've done well. We wanna call you to do this. So it seems like, man, God's putting this on his heart. The church or the school is calling him, come and do it. But the problem is it's a startup and I mean money. Tripp, we can't pay you. Uh, I want you to come and do this, but you're gonna have to work another job. And not only that, but we're not gonna let you put your kids in school for free. You're gonna have to pay to put your kids in here. Uh, we're broke, don't have any money, sorry about it, but come, come get us there, maybe we'll get there someday. So what's Trip do? Relocates his family. They go and they start at this school that can't afford to pay him. He's working pro bono. His kids are going there. He's paying tuition to put them in. And as you, if you know, I'm sure you know, private school education is not cheap, especially up in a city like Philly. So for eight years, Eight years, Trip works at the school. 
and doesn't receive a dime. Didn't get paid anything. And he walks into a school board meeting one night and some businessmen have staged a coup. And they've said, you know what? We don't really like what you're doing. You're fired. No heads up, no warning, no cause, just we don't like it. You're out. How do you think Trip felt? How, how would you have felt in that moment? I know how I'd feel. I'd be going, hang on, God. You called me to do this thing. Like I was following, I, I was being obedient to you. How did you let me end up here? I'd, I'd be angry and then I'd be looking at those guys going, you just wait. This school's gonna fall apart if I'm not here. And you just wait. The day's coming and this thing's gonna fall apart. I'd be expecting divine retribution. That's what Tripp expected. But here's the other problem with unrighteous anger. You see, like Jonah, we would rather see those who have wronged us be judged than see grace. So let me ask you this. Is there a place in your life right now where you're wishing for judgment on someone rather than grace? Where are you waiting for them to get what's coming to them? The problem with unrighteous anger is it's vertical. It's a wrong understanding of God, but it's also horizontal. It affects how we look and treat others. You see, if Jonah had understood the steadfast love of the Lord to him, like he prayed about back in Jonah chapter two. Remember back in Jonah chapter two, what does Jonah say? Verse eight, those who pay regard to vain idols, what? Forsake their hope of steadfast love. Now think for just a minute what has happened in the three chapters of this book. You've got Jonah, the man of God, who hears the word of God, and what does he do? Nope, I'm out. Packs his bags and leaves. So what does God do? I'm not done with you yet, Jonah. And he sends a storm, chases after him. Jonah, how does he respond to the storm? Nuh-uh, I'd rather die than deal with you. Throw me over the boat. So they throw him over. Then what does God do? Not done with you yet, Jonah. Sends a fish, swallows him. And after three days and three nights, sitting in the belly of a fish, Jonah has wrestled his position and finally declares, salvation belongs to the Lord. Man, you want to talk about slow to anger. You want to talk about mercy and grace. I know that if I was God, that storm wouldn't have been a vessel of mercy. That fish wouldn't have been a part of his grace. Those things would have been wrath poured out on him. Church, when we recognize the character of God towards us, it causes us to respond towards others with the exact same heart. And you see, Jonah didn't see that. And Jonah didn't do that. Having walked through this book and spent four weeks immersed in it, studying it, thinking about it, I tend to think that I wouldn't be like Jonah, right? You know, if this was me, I, I wouldn't do that. I, I would be able to recognize God's sovereignty and goodness towards me. I'd be able to look back and go, man, I, I would be grateful I'd be so grateful that God sent a fish so I didn't drown. And then he spit me out. Man, I, I, I tend to think that wouldn't be me. But the truth is, I don't. You see, if God came after you with a fish and saved your life, do you think a day would go by where you didn't think about being in the belly of that thing? Like, what, a, what an experience. Do you, do you think a day would go by where that wasn't on you, in your mind, at some form or fashion? See, here's the thing. God didn't send a fish after you. He sent his son. He sent his son to take your place in that storm and to receive the full wrath of God that you deserved. And unlike Jonah, 
Jesus didn't go outside the city in anger to wait on its destruction. Jesus went outside the city and wept, awaiting his own destruction. So have you recognized the magnitude of God's mercy towards you? Has it captivated you in such a way that the position of your heart is one of gratitude towards God, one of thanksgiving and mercy towards others? Jonah experienced God's mercy, but he was angry. However, it gets scarier. Jonah uses his theology to justify his sin. Who who does Jonah know God to be? What does he say in verse two? Who is God? What's God's character? God, you're a gracious God and merciful. I know you to be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He's, He's quoting Exodus chapter 34. He's remembering the God of the covenant. But do you know what's next in that? Verse seven of Exodus 34. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. There's that judgment. That's the part that Jonah wants, but he knows he's not gonna get it. He, he stops. He doesn't quote that back part because he knows that God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And because that's who God is, and since Jonah's not gonna get it, how does Jonah respond? I'd rather die. Church, this should shock us and this should warn us. Jonah used the Bible to justify his sinful position. He actually used the character of God to justify his own sin. That's the depth of our prone to wonder. If one of God's prophets was willing to run and to use God's word, what are we willing to do? Hmm. Jonah's theology, was it wrong? Was he wrong in his understanding of who God was? No, he knew God's character but how he applied it was dictated by the state of his heart. Although you may believe and know all the right things, when we take and apply our own theology for our own personal gain, our own personal mission, to justify our own viewpoints, we're no different than Jonah. But he's full of mercy. I can remember back when um, President Barack Obama was elected, got a friend who is not a regular churchgoer, doesn't read his Bible often. And the day Obama was announced president, he sat down with his Bible. He opened it, threw it on the table, and began to read. And he spent hours searching the scriptures, man, just reading and reading. And I was like, okay, great. And he walked over to me, dropped it in front of me. There it is. It's right there. What's right there? That guy's got the mark of the beast. He's Satan in human form. He's the one who's come to end America and the world too. And we all just stood party to it. He had taken the scriptures to justify and argue his own viewpoint. That's just an illustration. If we are using the scriptures to justify our stance, to boost our own position, to make us feel better about ourselves, then we should be warned. You see the scriptures, like the book of Jonah, when they're read rightly, They're offensive to us. They critique and correct us. Why? 
man, because God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Church of Jonah was angry because God didn't conform to his way. Jonah had made in his own mind an image of who God was supposed to be. What Jonah was participating in was idol worship. He took God and made him something he thought he should be. And when God didn't respond the way Jonah wanted him to, Jonah was furious. He wasn't just mad at God, but he was mad at everybody else. Wait till they get theirs. Where do you desire judgment and not grace? What is driving your anger? Jonah's so angry, he's ready to die over my dead body, God. This is my life, so I want it to end. And look at how God responds to Jonah's temper tantrum. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, merciful and gracious, like a good counselor, he just gently asks the question, do you do well to be angry? See, God's still gentle with Noah, even after all of this, after all of these things. He doesn't lie into him and let him have it. No, instead he works to get to the bottom of Jonah's heart and he gives him an object lesson. This brings us to our second point. The second question for us today is what do you care about? So God gives Jonah this object lesson. Jonah hikes up out of town. He goes up on the top of the hill overlooking the city and he sits back and he begins to wait. You know, Nineveh's in a desert area, maybe some, some mesquite brushes sitting there and he builds himself a crude little shelter that doesn't do much good for him. He's hiding under it. And he's, he's getting hot, but God looks down in his mercy and he looks at Jonah and what does he do? He causes a plant to grow and offer shade. Ah, Jonah, relief. And how does Jonah feel about this plant? Verse six, it says he was exceedingly glad. Now, how did Jonah feel in verse one? He was exceedingly angry, but now we're exceedingly glad. You see what God's doing here? We've gone from exceedingly angry to exceedingly glad, but why? Why is he glad now? Because once again, Jonah's experienced God's mercy. But as quickly as that plant shows up, God sends a rootworm at it. It eats away the roots and that dies. And then all of a sudden there's a West Texas wind. <laughs> right? Summertime here. It cooled off to maybe 110 degrees there. So it, it's hot. And it's, it's likely that Jonah didn't have anything to eat or drink. He was just waiting. He's got his popcorn and his peanuts. Man, you just wait. I, I, he's, he's got pictures and images of Sodom and Gomorrah coming to Nineveh. Hellfire and brimstone, man, he, he's ready. But when the plant dies, how does Jonah feel? He's angry. And, and what does God say to him? Jonah... Do you do well to be angry about this plant? You see, Jonah was exceedingly glad at God's mercy for him, but exceedingly angry when it was removed. He was exceedingly angry when his enemies received God's mercy, but he would have been exceedingly glad at their demise. Jonah's theology was consistently inconsistent. As long as it benefited him, it was all good. But if it benefited you, no way, no how. How does Jonah feel? He'd rather die. Kind of seems a little bit dramatic, doesn't it? Like, really? A plant came, died? You, now you want to die over a plant? Really, it's just a picture of what's going on inside of our own hearts. It's a picture of our own inconsistency. You, say, you see, when we say that we want to know God, 
but we're not willing to sit down and read our Bible or spend time in prayer. We're being inconsistent. When we say we want our kids to grow up in church and know how to walk with God, but we're not willing to teach them how to read and pray, we're being consistent, inconsistent. And then when someone else steps into their life to teach them, how do we tend to feel? Jealous and angry. Or, or how about when we say, man, we're a church that supports missions. I'll be happy to send my money, but don't you dare ask me to go. Inconsistent. What about when we say things like, we're not racist, we're even against it. But then we have Uncle Bob over for Thanksgiving dinner and he makes disparaging remarks about a people group and we don't stand up for him. How consistent are we then? When I expect you to show mercy to my kids, but expect you to get control of yours, how am I different than Jonah? You see, Jonah's theology and ours can be incredibly inconsistent, but it can also be deficient. Think about our prophet for a minute. Does Jonah actually grasp the mercy of God towards him? Has he wrapped his mind around those character traits that we've been talking about? No. No way. Surely we've seen that. And, and not does he just not wrap his mind around it, but where does it leave him? Where is Jonah now? Who's with him? Nobody. He's all alone. What's he full of? Anger. He's short-tempered. He's vindictive, right? He's just waiting on the downfall of the city. He's suicidal. He's clearly prideful. And he's caring about all the wrong things. Do any of those characteristics mark you? Are you angry or short-tempered? Are you isolating yourself because even though you know you've experienced God's mercy, you just can't get over him being merciful to somebody else? Are you just anxiously waiting for them to get what's coming to them? I know, I see, I'm, I'm better. I think I'm the, I'm the solution. Maybe there's even some in here who are suicidal because they're angry over how life has turned out. Where has your deficient theology, your lack of fully understanding God's mercy to you left you? Now, if any one of those things describe you, I've got some good news. As one commentator says, a Jonah lurks in every Christian heart. You're not alone. You're sitting in a room full of people with a lot of the same problems. I know that I have a tendency to have high expectations for my kids, which is just a politically correct way of saying I can be hard on them sometimes, right? I have high expectations for my kids. And one of the things I expect them to do is be obedient the first time. I heard a pastor say once that delayed obedience is disobedience. So when I ask you to do something, obey me. And when my kids don't obey, and I have to ask them over and over and over and over again, I'm quick to grab them by the arm and say, this isn't gonna fly, bud. Let's go, time to get a whipping. But look at how God responds to Jonah. He just asks him questions. He doesn't grab him and say, I've given you enough chances. Man, storms, fish, plants. He doesn't ask him harshly, what are you thinking? What is wrong with you? 
God just carefully probes at Jonah's heart and says, Jonah, look inside of you. Is your anger justified? Does this plant in which you did nothing about? You didn't plant it, you didn't water it, you didn't cultivate it, you didn't pour your heart into it. Does its growing and dying really deserve the weight of what you've given it? And Jonah wrapped up in his emotion says, yeah, of course it does, God. I'm angry enough about this plan, I'm ready to die. And then God in his grace and mercy, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster, he looks back at Jonah and says, you see, you pity this plant. That word pity is worth underlining in your Bible. That word pity carries with it the idea of a mother with tears in her eyes caring for her children. It is a fierce and undying love. It is a kind and gentle love. Jonah, you love this plant like that and you do nothing about it. But Nineveh, that great city, the one in which I've set the bounds on, the one in which there's over 120,000 people the city that I've established and sustained with image bearers that look just like you, my city, should I not pity? Should I not care for it? Should I not be willing to offer mercy and repentance to it? See, what does Jonah care for? At the end of the day, what is Jonah about? He's about vindication. He's about divine retribution. He's about his own wants and needs and desires to be satisfied. But when we look at the whole book of Jonah, what does God care for? He cares for pagan sailors on a boat in the middle of a storm that had nothing to do with them. He cares about a rebellious prophet that tries and tries to subvert and run away from God's plan. He cares about a plant that provides shade for his prophet that's rejected him. He cares about cows. He cares about a city of 120,000 godless people who can't even distinguish right from wrong. They're right from their left. What does God care about? He cares about you. He loves you. You see, Jonah's theology wasn't necessarily bad. It was just influenced by the position of his heart and his heart was bent inwards. He hadn't grasped God's mercy toward him and because he hadn't, he couldn't give it to others. He cared about what he thought God should do more than what God wanted to do. So church, the question for us is, what do you care about? When others look at you, what do they say is your greatest concern? Parents, when your kids look at you, do they say, man, my mom and dad were merciful and gracious to me because they understood the mercy and grace of God? Or do they look at you and go, why are they so hard on me? Husbands, do your wives go, I can't believe how good Jesus must be because this man has given me a picture of what it's like to serve. As Christ gave him up for the church, so my husband's given himself up for me. Husbands, is that what your wife says about you? Or do they see you as a workaholic who only thinks provision is what a family needs? They just need to have all their money provided and their material things met. Wives, do your husbands go, Man, I can't imagine how beautiful Jesus is because my wife has given me a picture of what it means like Christ served the church. She gave, she's giving herself up for me and if, if that's what that is and that's the most beautiful thing I ever see, I can't imagine what Jesus is. Or do your husbands just go, man, I wish she'd quit nagging me to do all the things. 
Church, when our city, Dalhart, looks at Liberty Baptist Church, do they go, man, there's something about those people that understand the mercy and grace of God because they've been with Jesus? Or would they even know if we weren't here? What do you care about? What do your actions prove about your theology that proves about your heart? You see, God fires this last question at Jonah. Jonah, should I not care about Nineveh? And how does Jonah respond? We don't know. There's no answer. There's no happy ending. There's a cliffhanger. As Tim Keller says, it's almost as if God steps back to fire the arrow of this last question at Jonah and all of a sudden Jonah disappears and who's left but you, but me. The arrow's really fired at us. So church, the ultimate question is this. Will you respond to God's compassion towards you by being an extension of mercy and grace towards others? Have we, as we have walked through the book of Jonah, have you understood just how merciful, how slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster, he is to you? Hmm. The word of God always calls for a response. You can't hear Jonah, you can't hear God's last question to Jonah and not do something with it. To just say, I'm gonna go on and live my life is a response to it. It's to say, nah, God, I'll do my way. I'll live according to my thoughts. I don't need to do what you want me to do. Sometimes when we respond to the word of God, it is a go and do. And sometimes when we respond to the word of God, it is a sit and believe and awe and worship at who he is. And I believe that the book of Jonah forces us to do both of those things. It's to look at the beauty of the cross and then it's to live according to that. So the way we are gonna to respond today is a little bit differently than we normally respond to a sermon. Normally we just close in prayer and then we sing a song and we're done. Um, I'm gonna actually go ahead and ask the musicians to come up. Don't worry, this isn't scary. If anything, there's anything awful or weird or anything like that. In Jewish tradition, the book of Jonah is read on the day of atonement. It's read. And it's left with a question. And the way that in Jewish tradition they respond is they flip over a couple pages to the book of Micah. So take your Bibles, your phones, Micah chapter seven. And in Jewish tradition, they would respond to this final question by reading together the verses 18 through 20 of Micah chapter seven. So, so if you're not there yet, we'll have them on the screen, but I think it's helpful to have them in front of you. Once you get there, here's what we're going to do. We're going to respond. We're going to respond the same way they do. We're going to read these three verses out loud together. So I want to ask you to stand as you get there. Now, when we read and we do responsive readings like this, I know that I can have a tendency to be a, uh, a passive reader, right? Like I'm just, words are coming out of my mouth because this is what I do. But I'm asking you now to be an active reader to participate in what the words of these are saying. Whether you know God or don't, these words are for you. Whether you're a part of this church or not, these words are for you. Think back as we read this from all we've learned from these four chapters. Let's read Micah chapter seven, verse 18. Who is a God like you? 
pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. God, thank you for the book of Jonah. Thank you for being a God full of mercy and grace towards me, towards us. Who is like you, O oh God, that you would not just forgive, but you would also pass over our transgressions. Lord, if you were to count my sins, if you were to count our sins, we would be doomed. But you don't retain your anger because you delight in steadfast love. Ah, we, we might be captivated by the steadfast love of our God. May we have the compassion that you have shown us. Lord, lead us to show it towards others. May the grace and mercy that you have granted us flow outward from this place. Jesus, help us. Thank you for being a faithful God. Thank you for being slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Lord, you are worthy of our worship. We ask this in Jesus' name.